0: April 1645 The cunning woman's granddaughter is chasing a pig when she learns there is to be no frolicking in the village on May morning. Minister's orders. Bogger that! She pants. And bogger! Oh, this pig! There's no catching him! Clutching her sides, she gives up the chase and collapses laughing against the gnarled trunk of a tree. Above her head, Pink blossoms shake like fairy fists. Spring has arrived. A beautiful time. A time when it feels absolutely right to think of dancing barefoot in the dew and absolutely wrong to dwell on the new minister with his miserable ways and face like a trodden parsnip. That's what they be saying, the blacksmith's son tells her. No pole. No going off into the woods. No nothing. It ain't godly Nell to frolic so. That's what the minister reckons. Nell picks a blade of new grass and begins to chew it. Her stomach rumbles beneath her apron, but she is used to that. Out of the corner of her eye she can see the pig rooting around. It is a bad pig. A bothersome pig. Her granny will sort it out. This is how. A spell to soothe a truculent pig. First, catch your pig. Do it on a Monday, on a waning moon, when the time be right for healing. Point him to the north and hang on tight. Wrap his snout three times with a wand of oak and call, Powers of earth, tame and soothe this creature, that he may become docile and no longer a boggin nuisance. Wait seven beats of the heart, then let him go. So mote it be. A light breeze frisks the orchard. There are things Nell ought to be doing, but she stays where she is, squinting up at the blacksmith's son and thinking about May morning. And who be you wishing to frolic with anyway, Sam Towser? she chuckles. As if I couldn't guess. The lad reddens. He is a month short of sixteen, and all swept through with the kind of longings that can tie up a boy's tongue and have him tripping over everything, from clods of earth to his own great feet, twenty times a day. He has a mop of corn-colored hair, and a cleft in his chin so deep it might have been pressed there by his guardian angel. He is too ungainly, too unfledged as yet to be truly handsome, but he will be. The promise of it is all about him, like the guarantee of a glorious day once some mist has cleared. No one, he mumbles, I got horses to see too. No time for fumbling around with some daft maid on May morning or any other time. Pah That's a fib. Nell flings both arms wide and twists her face to look like a parsnip. Beware, sinner. Beware what you say. Repent. Repent, for Satan loves a fibber and will carry you off to burn in hell. In hell, I tell you, where fibbers go and frolickers. And women who wear scarlet ribbons or sweep their hearths on some days. Hush, hush up, ye daft wench. Repent, repent, for I am your minister, God's representative in this heathen place. Repent, for though my nose drips and I do not know a hoe from my knell, hush elbow, I know a sinner when I see one, and a fibber, and a frolicker, all rolled into one vile, wretched, right. Body and e. He has pounced and is tickling her, tickling her to what feels like a giggly death, while the sun pours down like honey and the truculent pig looks on in mild surprise. You two, have a care. Mind that tree and stop your messin'. A woman has entered the orchard. She stands some distance away, almost in the nettles. Her face beneath a bonnet the color of porridge is grave. What? Nell scrambles to her feet. What is it, Mistress Denby? What's happened? The blacksmith's son gets up. There are twigs and fallen petals in his hair. He looks like Puck. He looks drop, dead, frolicsome. got her go, he mutters. I got horses to see, too. The woman and the girl pay him no mind. They have already jumped the stile and are hurrying away along the crooked path leading down to the village. Woman stuff, he supposes. Someone getting born, or dying, or doing both in the space of a few breaths. He doesn't want to be seen trotting at the heels of women folk toward whatever or whoever needs their attention in some fusty room. The sun is high now, and he has his own ritual to perform. The apple tree he chooses is truly ancient, its timber as knotted as a crone's shins, its blossom strangely pale. No one knows how long it has stood here or why it was planted alone. Much older than the rest, it continues to bear fruit so sweet that to press cider from it and drink the stuff is said to send the mind dribbling out of the nostrils and the legs in several directions at once. It is to this tree the apple howlers come, on twelfth night, to scare away evil spirits. It is here that they form their circle, raggle-taggle villagers, young and old, banging pails and pots and howling, hats full, caps full, bushels, bushels, sacks full, loud enough to wake the dead. It is on these branches and around this trunk that the howlers hang their amulets and leave cider-soaked toast for the piskies. The orchard swarms with piskies. Everyone knows that. Little folk in rags, their skin as rough as bark, their heads sprouting lichen and moss. A few are downright malicious. The rest, merely troublesome and high-spirited. All are uglier than dead hedgehogs and as greedy as swine. Over the hills in a neighboring county lies fairy territory, a prettier species by far the fairies, but just as pesky, so rumor has it, just as demanding of treats and remembrance. Be good to the piskies, the old folks say hereabouts, and they will be good to you. Treat them with respect on twelfth night, and they will stay by the trees, watching over the fruit until picking time comes. The cider-soaked toast has been eaten long ago by robins and other things, but the amulets are still here, swaying gently at the end of their strings like small, hanged felons. May I? says the blacksmith's son, before pressing the point of a horseshoe nail into the old tree's trunk. Yep, something replies. The sound of it such a faint rasp that the blacksmith's son assumes the pig has farted. Slowly... Carefully he begins to cut. Not his full name, Samuel, for he isn't sure of all the letters. A single S is the mark he makes. The downstroke wobbly as a caterpillar against the wood. He can't spell the other name either, the one that is on his mind, day and night. The one he only has to hear in passing, for a fluttering to start in his belly, as if larks are nesting there. He knows his alphabet, though. Just and he knows from the way the girl's name is said which letter he needs to entwine with his own. It is one of the tricky ones that sound different, depending on the word. As the metal point of the nail forms the letter's curve, he finds himself wishing it made a soft sound like the beginning of gentle. He would have liked that. It would have seemed significant. The girl's name, though, begins with a hard G, like gallows, or God. When he has finished, he steps back to inspect what he has done. And then, he sees one. At least he thinks he does. There, and gone it is, between knots of blossom, its face as coarse and grey as the tree, its small bright eyes fixed intently on the S and the G. Oh! <gasps> he looks quickly, all around, and then back again. Nothing. There is nothing there. A trick of the light, perhaps? But no, his sight is good, and he isn't given to fancies. He stays a minute more, half dreading, half hoping to see the thing again. What did it mean? Was it lucky to see a pisky when you were a month short of sixteen, and so desperate to get your hands on a certain someone that you would probably die of frustration if it didn't happen soon? Did it mean that he would? Did it? It takes just seconds for the blacksmith's son to convince himself that he has been sent an auspicious sign. That come May morning he will be frolicking away to his heart's content with the girl whose name begins with a hard-sounding G. She will be all over him like a vine. Yes, she will. After all, she is the minister's daughter and seems as distant and cool.